With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to One Quirking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Rob Volpe. Rob is an astute observer of life and a master storyteller who brings empathy and compassion to the human experience. As CEO of Ignite360, he leads a team of insight, strategy, and creative professionals, helping the world's leading brands across a range of industries uh, to help police untapped potential. As a thought leader in the role of empathy in marketing and the workplace, Rob frequently speaks on the topic at conferences, corporations, and college classes. And he has been quoted in Advertising Week, Mashable, Huffington Post, TheStreet.com, Gourmet Retailer, I got to ask you about that, and the Chicago Tribune, among others. Rob's first book, Tell Me More About That, can be purchased wherever books are sold. Here today to talk about that book and so much more is Rob Volpe. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Rob. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, so I'm going to ask you the first question, uh, which is what I ask everybody, uh, and, and that is, Rob, where does your story begin? That's such an awesome question. Um, you know, the, my story as it relates to empathy in particular goes back to a fall day in, I think it was 1980 in Greenfield, Indiana, which is a small town that I grew up in. Um, and my family had just moved into that small town. And um, it's where my classmates decided to start to tease me and, and announced that I was gay, even though it was fifth grade, it was 1980, I didn't know what gay was, you know, it's not like it is today, uh, with gender awareness and fluidity and, and all the things. Um, and that's where I guess the troubles started for me. And it's where I started to really leverage empathy, um, and, and not consciously, but I was trying to be empathetic with people in order to navigate and survive um, a, a painful childhood. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's where a heightened sense of empathy skills came about for me. So I would say that that was definitely uh, where this particular story starts. Got it. Got it. So kind of early, early childhood experience, uh, not, not a positive one at that. Um, but, you know, sometimes those those kind of early painful experiences lead us to, um, I don't know, sometimes insight, but also to to kind of kind of go on and do some really interesting things kind of later in life. 
Well, yeah, it, it was, you know, sometimes I describe it as like, if I were Peter Parker, it was that spider bite in my origin story. Um, you know, that, that painful thing that happened that ultimately unlocked a gift that I'm now, you know, at my career is all about empathy and, and being more empathetic and the field that I've, I've fallen into, as well as then understanding how to be empathetic and being able to, to, identify that, distill it down into a way that people can connect to it and hopefully be more empathetic themselves because we got an empathy crisis on our hands. Tell me, tell me more. Well, tell me more about that. How's that, how's that for a reference to your book? But what do you mean when you say empathy crisis? What do you mean? There's, I mean, you, you don't have to look far to see it, but even sort of empirically, I'm going to have every single cat that I own, and there are three, I now have two of them circling around me. Um, so sorry, there's, you don't have to look far to see that there's an empathy crisis um, in terms of the way we're engaging with each other, communicating with each other. But the data is even there to prove that out. There was a study out of the University of Michigan that came out in 2010. They did a, a study of studies uh, analyzing student life surveys from 1979 to 2009 across 76 different universities. And they found, wow, really? Um, <laughs> they found that there was a 40% decline in the ability to see the point of view of your classmates from the time the study started until 2001. And then it never, it, it didn't rebound or anything since then. Um, and I, when I first heard that in, in 2010, I was really shocked. It was really concerning that this was an issue um, and thinking like, okay, in 2010, somebody who was in college at the turn of that century in 2001, they're in their thirties. And, you know, then today they're in their forties. They have, um, you know, a partner, a spouse, they're, you know, working well into their career. They're managing people, they're members of, of their community, society, and yet they have diminished empathy abilities. And so the way that that would end up playing out with each other, we wouldn't be able to communicate as well, collaborate, persuade, all the things that we're seeing, all the things that we're seeing in society today, you started to see all of that, that play out there. And being in qualitative research, that's what we're all about is making empathetic connections, you know, and understanding human behavior and helping our clients connect with that. And you were seeing it in our work, um, the challenge that our clients were having. Um, they were being really judgmental about people that were other uh, from you know, who they are in their own existence. And if you can't understand other people, how in the world are you gonna be able to, you know, if, if you're a marketer, create better products and services, you know, create a, a great compelling advertising message. But even like, how are you gonna be a good neighbor? to someone, you know, on a personal human level, how are you going to be a good manager to somebody? How are you going to show up in your community? Yeah. So it, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just this notion that people um, can't see another person's point of view or, or kind of refuse to, and, and there's no better place, no better evidence for that than going on Twitter um, or, or any kind of social media thing where, you know, somebody posts something and then immediately it's, well, you're wrong. And here's why. Um, and then it's name calling and it's trolling. And it's like, I, that's why I consider like Twitter to be like a cesspool 
Um, and I get mad at myself every time I go on it and go down these like little rabbit holes. Um, yeah, but you've it's, gotta, yeah, it's like you got to be ready for a cage match these days. Right. <laughs> Instead of having just a normal conversation and trying to understand someone else's point of view. Right. And there's, I mean, and I think a lot of it, you know, you say 2001 um, is, is kind of kind of leveled off and never, you know, never changed or never came back. This is the digital age. I mean, that's what's, you know, that's, that's kind of staring me in the face anyway. It's, I would call them keyboard warriors, you know, behind, behind a screen, yeah. you know, you know, if you, you know, I don't think people would say half of the stuff they say online to another person face to face, but. Oh, face to face, or if they weren't hidden by the anonymity of their username and the fact they don't need to show their photo, um, show their face. Right. Absolutely. Well, the username, like, you know, corkboard seven three two four. That's a Who real that person be? or not? I, 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 hey, I'm just spitballing here. Um, so, uh, but before we get to the books, I, I do want to talk about it. I, I do want to talk about your career in qualitative research because, um, you know, you know, I share that in common. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, it's not really a career that anyone goes to college for, um, you know, I know people who go and study business and they study law and they study, you know, um, whatever, but I don't know too many moderators who, uh, which is what we call ourselves from time to time, who kind of go to a university and say, you know what I want to do with my life. I want to run focus groups and interviews. How did you, how did you fall into the industry? Well, and it's exactly that. How did how did you fall into it? And yes, every moderator I know fell into it. Um, I I got laid off from a job. I was I've been in marketing services most of my career, so twenty six years we'll call it right now. Um, and because I was always fascinated with human behavior and understanding what makes people tick and how to influence behavior, and you know it doesn't take a, a psychiatry degree or being a rocket scientist to draw the line back to hmm, what happened on that fall day in fifth grade and how did that you know impact everything that's that's been in Rob's life and so I got into marketing and I've been in marketing services all of that time and I've journeyed through I did PR I did um, uh, promotional marketing grassroots marketing you, you, you name it I kind of did it um, and they were all fun and, and interesting. But the thing that I was always intrigued with and what I really got excited about were those opportunities when I got to engage with the consumer. Um, so if I was doing years ago, one of my early jobs, I was doing sampling events for Starbucks and Dryers slash Edie's ice cream. They had launched a, a line of ice creams together. And Starbucks back in the day did no advertising. It was all word of mouth. So they wanted to go to all these street festivals and scoop ice cream. And I was working at the PR firm and they hired me. And like, for me, that's like my dream job to travel the United States scooping ice cream for a summer when I was like 27 years old. It was perfect. Um, but what I really loved about it and was that moment where I was sharing the ice cream with somebody and then I was hearing back from them their reaction to it. And that's what I was sharing back with the clients. And they even said like, wow, you're like a researcher. This is like getting a research report in addition to delivering all these samples. And then, um, so, okay, fine. I did nothing with that. And then I worked at Kraft Foods for a time in, in Metro New York. And, you know, I'd be the first person at the focus groups and the last one to leave. And I'd sit through the debrief where the 
you know, brand management team was in and out and, you know, doing all these other things at the time, still didn't understand that this was really, you know, how to have that type of a career and what that career would really look like. And finally, I got laid off from a job. We were living here in San Francisco. Uh, I'd been doing some consulting with uh, some of the youth, uh, the research firms that work in the youth space because mm -hmm. I had been at a toy company, had gotten let go. And I was having uh, dinner with Wynn Tyree of Smarty Pants. Sure, yeah. And uh, she and her husband were out here on a project and I'd been doing a little consulting work with them. She was like, I'm looking for somebody that's just like you, that has a strategic thinking and can write a good deck, but that can also moderate. And we played the name game uh, for a little while, couldn't come up with anybody. And then three days later, I was at a, a swim um, as a hobby and for exercise. I was at an outdoor swimming pool here in the Bay Area, staring up at the sunshine, doing the backstroke. And all of a sudden it hit me. It was like, well, wait a minute. I like talking to people. Maybe I should be that moderator person. And so I ended up um, to talk to a couple of friends in the business. You'd be great. Go here. Went to Riva, got trained. And a month after I got trained, I was standing in a Walmart in Allentown, Pennsylvania, patiently waiting for someone to um, engage with a green giant test product that we were studying. Wow. And I was hooked. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, no, it's, um, there, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like one of these careers that I can never explain to my parents what I do for a living. Cause they have no clue, you know, and it, it, it kind of bothers me to this day that they can't really, cause they, my, my twin brother's a lawyer. My other brother owns a wine store. My sister's a dental hygienist. I'm a moderator, but I get more enjoyment out of doing what I do than I think all three of them combined. <laughs> Well, if you write a book about, and that includes stories about what you do, it'll help them understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a good segue to your book. Um, so your book is tell me more about that. Um, when did you have the, the notion to, to write a book and it kind of just walk me through sort of the timeline and the process? Sure. Um, so writing written communication has always been one of my strengths and a, a favorite uh, thing of mine. Um, so I, I feel like I've always kind of had a book in me. I just didn't know what it was going to be about. And then I launched Ignite 360 and people started saying, oh, you're a CEO now, you need to write a book. And my response was in what free time? Because, you know, yeah, I'm a CEO, but I'm an entrepreneur and it's a startup and it's just go, go, go. But the, the, this book, the genesis of it really came about in 2016. So you know, as you'll recall, 2010, that study came out about empathy and the, the empathy crisis. When I started Ignite 360, we really started to pay attention to empathy, how to connect our clients, as I was mentioning, to their consumers. And we started to identify what we now call the five steps to empathy. So what are those barriers? What did you get? What gets in your way? And how do you overcome those? And I was here actually in San Francisco speaking to a university class talking about, okay, here's insights awesome fields, you know, don't, don't wait till you're in your late thirties. Like I did to fall into it, go now, um, find it. But then let me also talk about empathy and how important it is. And I used some of my stories from being in the field and times that I failed in being empathetic, um, to help illustrate the point of how empathy can help and, and, and make the world a better place and, and your job a better place. And there was just this moment where the students were listening to me and I just had the voice inside me said, 
this is what you need to write about. You need to tell these stories. Um, and that was when I realized like, okay, this, this is what the book is going to be about and it's, it's going to be based on and using the stories of some of the amazing experiences that I've been fortunate to have as a researcher to help illustrate for others how to be empathetic and how to overcome those barriers for themselves um, and to try to get there. So I started writing the book that was in 2016. It's now 2022. So you can do the math. Um, and, and I was, I was, I am still running a company. So there were, you know, there were year long gaps between writing um, at times. I, I did a lot initially just to get the stories out on paper, like what were those experiences going in home where I was particularly challenged or whatever was going on. And then I started thinking about the overlay of more empathy into it. Um, did a lot of writing in 2018. That's when I think the, the book really started to come about. And I, I set out though, I didn't want to write a traditional business book. I wanted to write something that people would really want to read and get enjoyment out of. So it wasn't just an intellectual pursuit, but it was something much deeper that, that would kind of make people laugh out loud, be mindful, thoughtful, um, you know, hear the message, but be entertained at the same time. Because I feel like that's how we learn most effectively is through story rather than me, you know, just kind of lecturing to somebody. So um, kept working on the book, kept layering in more and more of me. I think in the initial drafts, I, I mean, I suppose I was a character, but I wasn't, it was a little more like kind of narrating mm -hmm. rather than being in it and so in 2018 is when I sort of started to step in as a more of a character and then did nothing in 2019 in 2020 I was going to go off and I, I I find I need to isolate myself in order to get into the zone and really write and I knew the book needed work I had a first draft that's longer than or it wasn't a first draft it was the fourth draft of the book but much longer than the, the final finished piece. And I knew I needed to go off and work on it. I'd gotten some feedback on it. It was positive, but the, like every manuscript, it needed, it needed help. And I was gonna go off and take a voyage on the Queen Mary II from Cape Town to Southampton. It was like three weeks at sea with only three stops. So I was gonna have plenty of time to do nothing but write. And I thought that was gonna be perfect. And then COVID happened. <laughs> So that trip got canceled. And also in 2022, like, you know, the world went to hell in a handbasket between George Floyd's murder and all the, the social injustice protests um, that, that came up, the elections, the pandemic, you know, you name it. And that's when I was like, all right, I've got to do something with this book and to, to really bring it forward. So that's when I engaged my publisher um, in fall 2020, we spent all of last year um, working on the manuscript and then, you know, the editing process, the cover and all of that. And now here we are. And here we are talking about it. So uh, you mentioned it here it is. Yay. Love the cover. Love the Thank cover. You. Just pops. Um, good packaging. Thank you. Uh, um, I did a lot of research on the cover. <laughs> you mentioned um, your publisher. How, how did you find your publisher? Did you go the, the traditional, get a literary agent, agent sells it to the publisher route, or how did, how did you find your publisher? Great question. So I knew there were three routes to publishing. There was the self-publish, upload your file onto you know Amazon or some other service, and you've got a book. 
obviously the traditional route with traditional publishers and then the sort of hybrid model. Um, and I, I, I knew when I first heard about those three routes, I knew like my ego, of course, would be like, yeah, it'd be great to have Simon and Schuster want my book and do all the things. But the thing that stuck with me when somebody in publishing explained the situation and they said, look, if you do the, the traditional route, which is really great and awesome, if they you are at their mercy though, like if they get the hot new, you know, they get Barack Obama's book, they're going to put all their resources there. Your title is yeah. like, you you're know, getting, you're getting bumped. You're getting bumped. Yeah. And to me, the book was too important. The message was too important. I wasn't putting all this effort into it just to, to get bumped. So I wanted a bit more control in the process. So the hybrid model started to look really good. However, what I was finding in the research I had done and, and friends that had gone that route was the thing that was lacking in the hybrid model was sales and distribution. <laughs> and I was like, but like, that's like cutting a tree in the forest and nobody can hear it. You know, it's yep. like, okay, great. I'm going to print the, and make this book. And then I'm supposed to go and sell every copy of it. Like, how does that work? I don't know books. I, you know, I want Barnes and, and Barnes and Noble is carrying my book. Like, that's what I wanted. I wanted books a million to have it. Indie bookstores. So um, so I got turned on Dov Barron, who's uh, a leadership uh, a guru expert based out of Canada. I was having a conversation with him and he connected me with page two, which is a hybrid publisher based out of uh, Vancouver. And they, and he said, he's like, Seth Godin has, has credited page two as like having cracked the code of how to do hybrid publishing. Um, and I, I think that it's true. So I engaged page two and that's great. I had all the editorial and the design support, but they also have a sales and marketing team and they have a distribution agreement with Macmillan. So we've got like real legitimacy behind the book and getting the book out. And, you know, like with any hybrid, like I can, you could do as much or as little as you want it. Um, and I've, I'm like, let's, let's in, make the investment. Let's get the book out there. Um, because I want people, I want people to be able to stumble across the book. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Do you, um, what did you learn about yourself during that process of, of writing and then, and then ultimately publishing the book? Wow. Um, <laughs> that it, being able to do it, I think is, is a big thing, just accomplishing that and getting it to the finish line. I, I think the other thing, um, the last six months before publication, were the uh, my so I'll give you the story. I was editing. Uh, we were editing one of the final chapters. We were in the proofing process, and I was like totally having a freak out about something. And my husband turned to me and he's like, "Who are you? I'm the one that's supposed to be the anxious one in the relationship. <laughs> like, what's happened here? We're like totally role reversed." Um, and and that I, I've. Yeah, I've learned more about uh, my own, just myself. I mean, I'm so reflective in the course of the book and really digging into the things that bothered me or where my judgment comes from, um, challenges that I've faced in the industry, in the, the research industry, uh, in terms of interviewing people. So I've learned about that. I've learned about my own 
you know, perfectionism and like letting things go. Um, and when to let things go, but when to also, you know, express your voice and your view and make sure your vision is, is coming through. Um, and yeah, like I didn't realize I was capable of so much neuroses and anxiety. And I mean, it, it's like any, any author that you've seen, you know, on a, in a movie, like I was that person, that's just Woody <laughs> Allen neuro, neuroses. I was and, thinking Woody Allen in my head when he said, oh that. my God, it oh was, my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> are they going to, you know, and, and yeah, I don't have children. So there's is that question like are people going to like the book are they going to enjoy it and are they going to experience the book the way i intended as i was setting out and i did a, a pre pre-launch reading um about three weeks before the book came out had about 75 friends families clients um, people that have just been supportive all along. And so this was my very first public reading of the book. And it was all on Zoom because, you know, that's the times we're living in. Um, but to see the, to see people laugh at the points that were supposed to be funny, to hear them and, and see them in the chat respond to the empathetic reflections, which I put in the back of every chapter. So, you know, you hear a story, and then their reflections to guide you back to thinking about how this plays out in your own life. And that's where the real sort of empathy building can come in and the skill building uh, comes in. But they responded really positively to that. You know, they laughed in all the right places, they were moved in the right places. Uh, and then the, the one uh, chapter I read has some, it's not scary, but there was definitely some suspense and I left them hanging on like what happens next. And people were like, I want to know, I want to know. Um, and that, that was so um, reassuring and affirming that like, okay, this, this, I, I've achieved what I set out to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody who writes, um, she won a, a Pulitzer prize in biography years ago. And she was telling me, you know, the first, the first draft of her manuscript, she said the first three chapters to her, um, her editor and her editor canceled her contract, um, right away <laughs> because oh, she's like, it, she, you know, her quote, direct quote was, it became increasingly evident to me that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, so she actually said she's still hell bent on writing this biography, um, but she goes and she says, like, what do I, what do I want readers to do? I want readers to, you know, be held in suspense. I want them to turn the page. Um, so she actually went and learned how to write thriller, uh, mysteries and thrillers, and then took those lessons and applied them to the biography. She wins a, wins a Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, so I love how you put suspense in your, um, you know, you, you kind of use that as well. It's a very smart decision, Rob. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted, like I said, I always wanted people to be entertained. Um, so I tried to craft the stories to be as engaging and entertaining and reflective as possible. Um, and I, you know, people have told me like they, they've laughed out loud in different parts and, you know, it's a book about empathy, Yeah. but that, and I think what it is for me personally, I will still, to this day, I have read Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris and that particular essay. I've read that so many different times 
there is still one part in it where I will laugh out loud to the point like I can't catch my breath because it just strikes me as so funny and absurd. And um, and I, I wanted that. I wanted to be able to make people laugh through reading because I think reading is so quiet and solitary, but if you suddenly get a chuckle out of somebody or a laugh, you're like, okay, what's that about? What's going on that it's evoked this you know, audible response? Right, well, I had an editor tell me once, funny is money, and I never forgot that. Um, do you have, I, I'm not gonna ask you for your favorite story in the book because that's that's probably a too hard. V. It's like picking one of your favorite children. But do you have do you have one story that stands out to you that um, that you could share with us? Uh, well, um, yeah, it is a good question. There are so many. I am really fond of the chapter um, called Mirror Mirror. It's chapter eleven. And it, it appears in the active listening session, section and it's about paying attention mm-hmm. and it's about being present um, in the moment. And the story behind it, we were on an in-home uh, in suburban Philadelphia. This was God, 2008, I think. And our clients wanted to learn more about uh, aging boomers. And so we were in the home of this one respondent and we were doing these four hour you know, pseudo day in the life type thing. So like you're going really deep and you're like looking in every single cabinet and room and touring everything. And we'd already done the house tour. We'd been in, you know, the bedroom, the bathroom, the basement, you know, outside, we're back in the living room, about halfway done. We're taking a break um, for a moment. And the, I had two female clients and a female videographer with me. And then it was a female respondent. And the Two clients go to the bathroom individually to do their business, and then they come back. And then I I can't remember if Natalie, the videographer, went or not, but then I went. And and it's important, the the gender and everything is all important to the story. So I walk into the bathroom and like, you know, okay, we're on a break, but I go in and I start to do my business and I have to pee. So being a man, I pee and choose to pee standing up in this situation. And so I lift the toilet seat and I start doing my thing. And, and I'd been holding water for a little while. So it took me a moment and I look up and I see my reflection in some sort of form of a mirror. And I'm like, oh, this is unusual. What is this mirror? Cause it's kind of like rounded. There's this like diagonal line through it but I'm not really clear on what it is. And I widen my field of vision and realize that what I am staring at is actually there's a it's a stained glass, but then there's a mirror shape inside of it of an erect male penis and testicles. (laughs) And it's like, oh, hello, what's this? And yeah, and I mean, we've been in, in her name's Amelia in the book. We've been in Amelia's house for hours. And we had been in the bathroom and nobody noticed it because of the way the toilet was situated kind of at the end of the tub and the shower curtain, you didn't see it, but the clients went in and used the toilet and they didn't see it and they didn't say anything. And so I I came back out and I asked her, I was like, Amelia, I was just in the bathroom and I couldn't help but notice. And she bursts out 
laughing. And you know, she just, she had just so much joie de vivre and her presence and her spirit. She was amazing, like one of my all time favorite respondents. And she goes and the clients are like, what, what, what? And so I send them in to look and they just start dying laughing. And we like come back together after a few minutes. And Amelia tells us this story about, you know, she was um, at the time, mid fifties, black woman had had divorced. Um, and she said she had that custom made at an art fair. Um, she saw there was a stained glass artist that was working. She asked if he did custom work. He said yes, and so she sketched out what she wanted. And she said she had it, she commissioned the work because she had seen too many of her friends change themselves for that. And she didn't want that to be her you know, reason for being. So she has that and she can look at that anytime that she wants to. And she's like, I wake up in the morning, I go into the bathroom and there it is. And I just can see it. I don't have to change who I am for that. And, you know, so just what an amazing um, statement of empowerment and an anthem of self and just absolutely loved it. And, and it was all because I was paying attention. Even though I was in a break, I was still present and aware of my surroundings. And I just widened my field of vision. And I saw something that really, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that it defined who she was, but it gave us so much added dimensionality to her character and her personality. And we just loved her. You know, we were loving her already, but it, she just, you know, we loved her even more after that. So yeah. that is one of the stories uh, in the book. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not the world's biggest Grateful Dead fan um, by a long shot, but Jerry Garcia has got a great line in Scarlet Begonias that I cite often, which is once in a while you get shown the light in the strangest places if you look at it right, you know, and that's just all about following your curiosity and just, you know, having the, you know, the yeah. almost the courage, number one, you have the the perception to, to see something that no one else saw, but then you had the sort of the courage to ask a question about it and, and you got some unique insight that you probably wouldn't have had. Um, you know, uh, otherwise. We had, no, and we had talked about her relationship history by that point. And, you know, she told us about being divorced and had an adult son and a grandson, but never got into that sort of aspect of, of who she was. So, yeah. And I love that Jerry Garcia quote. I've not heard that one before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Scarlet Pagonias. Have a listen. Um, I, again, I I'm not not the biggest fan, but I... I I have to cite that um, when I can. So I do have some uh, some specific questions here for you that I try to ask all of my all of my guests to see if I see any patterns, but also to have a little fun. I'm gonna start off with something that um, sometimes easy, sometimes difficult for people. But uh, Rob, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Charlie's Angels, Wonder Woman, and The Bionic Woman. Okay, and um, you didn't know you were gay in fifth grade. I knew there was something different about me. <laughs> I didn't mean my, that to come out the way it sounded. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, you could have put a little more sarcasm into that. And yeah, hello. Um, and I write about in the book, before we moved into that smaller, the small, small town that I mentioned, we lived in another town. My, my, my dad's side of the family is from New York. My mom's side of the family is from South Carolina. We'd been living in New York, moved to Indiana for my dad's job. And there was uh, my friend Joey who lived down the street and you, unbeknownst to us at the time, we're both gay. 
Um, but totally hit it off. And we would role play Wonder Woman and Bionic Woman, and you know, while the other kids were playing, you know, Dukes of Hazard or Adam 12 or whatever, <laughs> we were spinning around into our costumes to go fight, you know, fight crime. Yeah. And with the bracelets. Bullets with and bracelets. bracelets. And Jamie Summers could she could squeeze a tennis ball tennis and have ball. it break. Absolutely. In her hand. Absolutely. I'm there with you. I mean, I and love do, I love a very, it. you know, a very appropriate, like pull the hair back behind her ear so she could use her bionic hearing. That's too. right. That's oh, right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I'll see you, you know, playing um, those things. I played Love Boat when I was a kid and which my listeners know because Love Boat has come up quite a bit on this show. Love Boat was an awesome show. We, I, I, I loved, loved Love Boat. Um, and I tell you what, I started rewatching it during the pandemic um, from season one. And that Dr. Adam Bricker, he's me too to a few women on that show. Oh my gosh. Oh it's, my it's, gosh. Not... <laughs> There's you know. so many things that are bad. Um, that's funny because I, during the early days of the pandemic, I went back and started watching Charlie's Angels just for like some comfort, like, and I oh, still yeah. find like, cause the world is so crazy right now. It's like, what's the comfort TV from our youth that we can yep. go back to just to feel like things are okay again. Absolutely. I mean, uh, any of those, I, I, uh, I started watching emergency again, um, which uh, was when I was a kid, that was my all time favorite show. You know, the, the paramedics and the fire. It was. There were, I, I vaguely recall some dreamy uh, paramedics on that show. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, all right. So we got your TV shows. How about this? Um, what artists would we find on, you know, one of your favorite playlists? Oh, Kate Bush. All right. Kate, Kate Bush. Bush. First and foremost, Kate Bush. And then um, Culture Club. Duran Duran but the other one that's really interesting and when I I've written about this on social media before when I'm trying to get into the zone for writing or I just need to like calm down um anything that's like that late 60s early 70s Burt Bacharach sound <laughs> totally does it to me and and it's funny I've mentioned it to my parents that they laugh because that was the music that they were listening to back then so I think in, you know I was born in 68 so in my early formative years and probably in the womb, like Dionne Warwick, Walk On By, all, you know, uh, all yeah. of that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love, I love some good yacht rock. I'm not going to lie. Give me some Christopher Cross, uh, yeah. you know, sailing. Come on. Take That's, me away. Uh, yeah. All good. Absolutely. Uh, getting more literary here. Um, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper and, and your job is to write something? So you've, yeah, it's a blank piece of paper or computer screen, depending on how you write. What's Is it the, for a client or for myself? For yourself. For yourself. Uh, invigorated when it's for myself. Okay, tell me more. Why, why is it different from when you're writing for a client? <sighs> because when it's for myself, it can go in so many different directions and ways. And, you know, it, it's it's imagination, I think, about to spill forth. And I can... Um, I mean, I don't want to say write in any way that I want to, but I can play with it where I think there's a pressure deadline for clients and you're just like, er, what's the thing I'm trying to, to say? So I, I've found it harder to start writing something for clients than even when I'm writing like thought piece, I'm, a, I'm part of Entrepreneurs Leadership Network now. And so even when I'm writing thought pieces for them, th those things are blog posts, 
those flow so much more easily and get done so much faster than when I'm having to do something for a client. Yeah. I mean, I will clean my desk, clean the house, take the dog for a walk. Um, I don't know, take a ferry to Long Island before you know writing the first sentence for a client report. It's amazing. I go through, I don't know if you're this way, but it sounds like it where it's like, all I can, I'm like, okay, I'll write three, I get through three bullet points and then I've got to go do something else. Like I, I check my email, I check social media, I go get something to eat, play with the cats, whatever. And then I come back to it. And so it takes forever. And I have some colleagues who just can like sit down and plow through it. But for some reason I have this, like, I can't, um, I don't, I don't know if it's a, a focus thing or there's something about the way my brain works and as I'm processing, but I need that sort of other thing to distract me. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Um, you're an author now. So I'm curious to know what, um, what lesson about being an author do you feel like you learned the hard way? Um, ooh, that I feel like I learned the hard way. That's a really good question. Um, that it's just never done. <laughs> I had, can I, hold on. Can I show you? Yeah, please. The first draft isn't in here, but this is every other draft of the book. And I mean, going through the proofing, especially um, just, you know, move this paragraph here, there, everywhere, changes constantly. And, and it takes hours to do it. Um, and then finally get, you know, it was interesting that we did three rounds of proofing. So when the book was in layout and I was looking at the, the pages of it, we did three rounds and the first two rounds, I made some pretty substantial edits to, you know, moving paragraphs, changing sentences. The, the, the publishers, the page two was great. They were like, oh, you're easy. This is like nothing. Um, I was like, okay, that's good. But then when we got to the third round, I got the third round right as my grandmother was passing away in South Carolina. And I had gone to be with my family for that um, transition. And so I didn't have the time and probably the emotional like kind of focus for it. And it helped me just yeah, as I'm letting go of my grandmother, just like, let it go. It's okay. Like you've, you've done everything. You know, because I think a book writing, you know, it's something you can just always tweak. So, and it's so easy now with technology and it's all digital, it's easy to get in there and edit around, but at some point you have to put your pencil down yeah, and just let it go. And so I think similar to, you know, at that same time that I was letting my grandmother go, who's 97 years old, it's like, you can let this go. Just check and make sure those changes are there and don't stress about it. Yeah. You're never going to have a perfect book. Um, it's never going to be, no matter how many editors see it, no matter how many proofreaders look at it, it's never going to be perfect. 
Um, but Which that's is, what second and third editions are for, you know? And, <laughs> well, and I, I, I read, I took the time over the holidays. So I got, you know, an early copy, one of the first printed copies of the book. So it came out in late February. I got it right before Christmas. And I spent time over the Christmas break reading the book like a reader. And, and, and that was also hard, like not to look at it so critically, but just to enjoy it, enjoy it the way I intended my readers to enjoy it. And going through that, I mean, and that was hard as well, because you'd be like, oh, shit, why did I use that same word twice in that paragraph? That's something I try not to do. And I thought we had caught that. Um, and then I did find the one typo in the book while I was reading it. And it was in the last name of a good friend of ours in the acknowledgments section. <laughs> and the publishers are like, actually, like, it's good luck that there's like, that's kind of a publishing industry thing. I don't know yeah. if they're making me feel better or not. But I mean, and it did ultimately, they're like, no, it's good luck. If you found the one typo, that's okay. Um, and then I, I had to profusely apologize to my friend. I was like, so, you know, my publisher says that it's good luck when there is a typo in the book. And well, you know, your name is actually the typo. <laughs> <laughs> and she was yeah, awesome. That, and then she comes back with, oh, yeah, they also say it's good luck when a bird poops on you. So <laughs> <laughs> or when it rains on your wedding day. Exactly. Um, exactly. I don't care what Atlantis Morissette says. It's not ironic. That is um, not, not ironic. <laughs> it's not ironic. Uh, so what, what's, uh, what's some advice you would give to an aspiring author? Someone comes up to you and says, Rob, you know, you wrote this book. It's great. I want to do the same thing. What would you tell an aspiring author? Just start, just start. I think I've, I've had people come up to me indicating they'd like to write or wish they could. And it's like, just start. Don't, don't get hung up on what the book, what you think the finished product is going to look like. You know, it's, it's the analogy I use is it's like, if you're, you know, that scene in Ghost where they're doing the pottery and everything. Like you got to just get the clay down and start to mold it and shape it. And, and writing is like that. It's like, you've just got to get the words on a page, then step back, look at what you've got and then, you know, reshape it and keep, keep going and refining it over and over and over again. And don't, um, the other, so there's two, one is just start. The other one is don't rush divine timing, you know, books take a long time. It's not writing a tweet. You are writing a lot more characters. Um, and so don't, don't put artificial deadlines on yourself. You know, you've got to get into the, the headspace, um, the physical space in some cases, and it's not easy. It's not like you go from writing a report flipping into writing a chapter in your book like you've got to have that moment of time and space to do it so don't put pressure on yourself just enjoy the process and and do it uh let's say you can go back in time um to give your younger self some advice uh what would you give what what, what how would you um you know let's say you could write a letter to your younger self write a letter to me exercise and mail it to to the younger rob what would you tell your younger self? Oh, well, I've done this in therapy um, as well. <laughs> <laughs> Hugging my inner child. It's okay. It's going to be better. Um, but yeah, that, that's really what it's about is going back to, you know, Rob in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade 
and saying like the things, you know, this really hurts right now, um, but the things that you're going through are going to enable you to do great things as you get older and help people. And so as painful as it is, you know, it, it's making me who I am. Um, and that's a really great gift ultimately. Like I, I, I wouldn't, I don't regret what I went through. I don't know that I would even change it necessarily because if I changed it, I wouldn't be me. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be who I am today. I mean, to that end, um, if you had the, the ear of any of those kids who teased you on that fall day in 1980, what would you tell them? Of those kids at that time? At that time, yeah. So, I mean, knowing what you know now. I mean, kind of yeah. you know, knowing what you know now. Slap, slap them upside the head and say, knock it off. Um, I would say, well, and, you know, it's interesting, and I write about it. I mean, that that is the sort of larger arc in the book um, of my journey and how I came to a place of forgiveness with those kids and so knowing what I know now, I think I would go back to them and, and talk to them about the things that are hurting them and their own suffering um, and what's happening for them at home or in other places and trying to help them get to a better place of coping and dealing with that rather than taking it out on other people. Well, it's a, a beautiful sentiment and uh, kind of brings us right back to where we began. Yes, it does. Full circle so, moment. Full circle. So uh, the book, of course, is Tell Me More About That. Um, it can be purchased wherever books are sold. Uh, Rob, anything else you want to say to uh, the, the listeners of Uncorking a Story? Um, well, first, thank you so much for listening. Um, and I do hope they check out the book. You can also visit 5stepstoempathy.com. It's the number five steps to empathy.com to learn more about the book and me and, and all the things. Um, and then hopefully um, people will find me on social media and follow me. You can look for either Empathy Activist or uh, RM Volpe or Rob Volpe. And I'm on almost every platform. Well, there you go. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to chat with me. I appreciate it. Awesome, Mike. Thank you. This has been awesome. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.